Score a great deal at Dan Murphy's for the footy finals. Beat the crowd and shop online at danmurphys.com.au for delivery in under two hours or pick up in under 30 minutes. Kick off the footy finals at Dan Murphy's. Conditions apply. Choose to drink wise. Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast, proudly sponsored by Subway. Get your mid-match feast delivered fresh. Subway, eat fresh. Massive agenda for you today. We've got Christian Jolly from Champion Data to unpack the prelims. Ron Connolly joining us again. Jake Michaels, you'll be happy. Cripper won the Brownlow. Two teams remaining. We've finally got the grand final matchup. And uh, I think most importantly, you'll be happy you don't need to buy a Collingwood membership next year. Yes, I am. Um, I was very nervous this time last week. And it probably that multiplied by about 20 in the last quarter and that last two or three minutes. I can't. I still can't get over how epic that finish was and how much that really summed up Collingwood's season going into yet another tight one. But as we've kind of been banging on for all throughout the season that these streaks don't last forever so they won all these tight games and then the two that mattered most the two finals they lost they lost two tight games so yes very pleased i don't have to buy two collingwood memberships because you were you put your hand up for one of those memberships during the week i was gonna just snatch a little freebie off yeah yeah if they got up yeah, so okay so what do i get now so i had six to eight hundred dollars on the line with collywood what do i get in return depends on what you want on the brown life well, we'll move on from the Brownlow for the time being. Now, as we said, plenty to unpack today. Uh, before we do get into it, though, guys, something we noticed from the weekend that others may not have picked up on. Roko, we might start with you. Um, thanks for having me back. And just quickly, I'm surprised to even see Jake here. I thought his season was <laughs> over now the Brownlow's it is. done the main event. It is. I'm going on vacation <laughs> after this. Um, oh, look, I, I do bang on about football media far too often, but um, I just thought Rightly was, so. Couldn't couldn't help but uh, notice the irony of Fox footy after not sending commentators interstate from Victoria all season sent a panel of four to do about a five minute pre-game thing <laughs> ahead of uh, the Sydney Collingwood preliminary final so I thought that was pretty funny maybe that's why they didn't send the callers they were saving up to send four people up there to do ten minutes of TV well I tell you what they w- they would have needed to save up because those flights turned out to be pretty expensive and you'd be pretty annoyed if because some of those flights from Melbourne to Sydney um, on prelim day were cancelled or significantly delayed. So how That's filthy right. would yeah. you be if you About spent... thousand dollars as well. Yeah, were, yeah. 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 Uh, Jeff Brown. Oh. Jeff Brown was on a plane that got turned around because there was a disturbing smell coming from the cockpit or something. But um, I, I just I have to say it is incredibly self indulgent. But I feel like my life's ambition has now been fulfilled. Uh, having made a cameo appearance on Roaming Brian on Beautiful. Friday evening after the year. Uh, thank you. Well done, mate. Thank you. Didn't get a speaking role, but uh, Brian did acknowledge my presence and told me to hurry up and get to the press conference. So thanks, BT, for the direction. Do you remember <laughs> what your first question was in the presser? Uh, well, as usual, it was probably long-winded and uh, rambling and wasn't answered by the coach. We love that. Christian, something you noticed, mate? Probably something more I didn't notice. Um, I wasn't there on the night, and I've been trying you to find out a bit more, but... I, again, I'm not sure we're going to see their their faces flash across the screen, but I am not sure that the umpires get an invite to Brownlow night. I didn't see any. I haven't heard of any in the past. Do we know that for sure? If, if that's a... I don't know why everyone's looking at me. I haven't had an invite for about the last <laughs> 10 years, but I, I do know that uh, I think the numbers of corporate attendees have gone up and the actual people 
who should a, be there have gone down over the years. That's a that's a travesty. The umpire, yeah. it's the umpires yeah. award, isn't it? How they can't be represented in that room by either, I think all of them should be an invite or at least yeah. a table of umpires, even an umpire to the best maybe ones. speak same on the, the night, yeah, maybe even speak on the night. Yeah. Or it's it. I don't know. They just sort of uh, yeah. We look at the Brownlow, it's such a prestigious award, and we know they're the ones that vote on it. They're the ones that give us history, really. They're and the I ones just that don't muck feel it up. Like, so yeah, it, well, they muck it up or they get it right. But yeah, <laughs> I just don't feel like they're given any credit on the actual night. Actually, look, I reckon the last time I went, this is true, the last time I went, um, I reckon we were sitting next to a table of umpires, but we hadn't sort of looked or realised. And about halfway through the count, yeah, every single game, someone's going, oh, you are kidding. <laughs> so they... Um, they, that's probably why they don't. Maybe they stay away. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. Get out of there. But in all seriousness, like I reckon, I used to sort of think, oh, should the umpires vote for it? But I'm okay with that. It gives it a, a real point of difference, and I reckon they they pretty much get it right too. When you consider that they don't look at stats, I mean, maybe they assume that, um, maybe they sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? By osmosis, almost they might sort of absorb some that go up on the scoreboard at half time or whatever. But mm. without looking at the stats, I think they generally speaking get the yep. best players right. Well, they're the, they're the only other people out there on the field, yeah. so they're the closest to the action. I sort of it makes sense for them. They're to the only the ones votes. with that perspective as well. You know, we're seeing the game maybe through a tally, even if we're on in the stands watching a game of footy, we're not seeing it the same way that the umpires. Are as well, and we do have these other awards like the Coaches Player of the Year award. Um, so you know, there's other panels of uh, experts or people, I guess, giving out awards throughout yeah. the season. It's just so funny. It's, it's just it's just funny that people are always saying, "Oh, the coaches shouldn't, the the umpires shouldn't do it," but then the coaches should. But then the players, it should be the pl- what the players say. Well, all three: the players MVP, the coaches award, and the Brownlow were all won by different players. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of like they're all seeing it differently and actually I think that weren't there I can't remember off the top of my head but I think there are a few examples where guys who everyone had said were among the best players in a game the coaches didn't give any votes yeah. to so you know the coaches can get it wrong too absolutely yeah Jake something you noticed mate something I noticed I've been very excited to share this one because as our listeners would know I am a bit of an Alistair Clarkson sceptic and I posed the question in our roundtable column this week. Good plug. Yeah, get it. Uh, go on and have a read of it now uh, on ESPN.com.au slash AFL. Who, uh, sorry, are the best two coaches in the AFL, Chris Scott and John Longmire, the two that will face off in the grand final? Are they the two best coaches? Are they the two best right coaches right now in the AFL? And sure enough, yourself, Jared, Rowan and Matt... All said, yes, they are. Now, can I remind you that Alastair Clarkson is a current coach in the AFL? And I have had to listen... Hang on. I have had to listen to Alastair Clarkson. You guys just raving about this bloke for 10 years and how he can do no wrong and how he's the saviour for North Melbourne now. And everyone forgets about him. But that's a trick question. How how have you rated... How are you rating or ranking the coaches, though? But that, this is well, what I've always... In, in your, a coach is... Your... I've always said a coach is only as good or only seen is as good as the players at their disposal. Right. And that's exactly it. So if you ask this same question last year or you ask it again this time next year, I I reckon nine times out of ten, people will say, yeah, the two best coaches are the coaches that are in the grand final. Well, I, I feel like I've been duped here because <laughs> I answered on the basis that we were talking about the coaches who were actually coaching this year. If I'd known Clark, I was part of it. Of course, I would have gone with him because you know of the twenty twenty three coaches. Now. He is the the best coach. I'll tell you what, seriously, and actually, I was being serious there. Um, <laughs> but the Scott and Longmire records. 
they are so close together. Yeah. I think it's two. They started at the same year. Yeah, yeah, two eighty two, two eighty five, or something. Started yeah. the same year. Both won one flag. Both losing have lost grand finals. Once made three grand finals. Um, once made four and, grand finals. And Scott's, consistent, Scott's consistent winning percentage is over seventy, and horse is sixty eight or, or sixty three. I think they're the t- easily the two highest of the contemporary yeah. coaches. So no. it's fair to assume that they are the two best coaches in the game right now if right you base now. it on win percentage. Well, if you well, base how... it on right now and Clarko isn't right now, if you ask me He is much, right now. No, he's not. He is. Okay, so... It, who's North Melbourne's coach right now? Yeah, but they haven't played <laughs> under him. <laughs> oh, but he's so good. They don't They don't need any time. If Clarko walked out with North no, I'm, on I'm, Saturday I'm and really, played Geelong, then, then North would win. Oh, I'm really angry about being tricked <laughs> by you, Jake Michaels. Yeah, we could ramble on about this forever. Just <laughs> something quicker that I noticed. Um, it was only yesterday, actually, with the release of the coaches' votes for the Garriers medal voting. Another, best, another best award. Best finals player. Another award, yes. Uh, two Collingwood players are topping that leaderboard. So Jack Crisp is currently on top with 16 votes. Uh, then you got Dugowie on 15 and Lockie Neal on 15. The highest Sydney player is Luke Parker on 13. And the highest Geelong player is Dangerfield on 10 votes. So mm. they're within striking distance, but it just had me thinking that no player has won this award without playing in a grand final. I'm just not sure. W- would everyone be comfortable with Jack Crisp, say, winning that award, having not played in the grand final? Yeah. What What I'm not, and apologies to the ignorance here, but what I've never been comfortable with with that is that some guys win it because they play more games than mm. other guys. Have they fixed that up? So no. there's waiting... Well, that's well, ridiculous. Not really. They've actually added more weighting. So, grand final this week, the oh, votes are worth one point right. five. So, but you know what I mean. Like, if, if your side's so good that you only play three games and not four, yeah, uh, that's it's always going to be three or four, isn't it? You shouldn't be yeah. penalised because your side's good. No, and the other thing is, I, I think I'm also of the belief that if a player does play three games and they they play three amazing games, um, but they get knocked out in a prelim. I'm comfortable with them winning the award if they have played three amazing games. Mm. Jack Crisp was really good against uh, Sydney, but I don't think he was that great in their other two games. And it's like he's he had one really good game, and he's going to be the best player of the finals. Oh, I thought he was. I thought he actually. I reckon. Yeah, you know, I hesitate to say this without the stats, but I, I reckon I thought he was his most damaging against Frio actually in that first first half, half was good. Yeah, that run that run he had about 100 meters where Michael Frederick was. Just couldn't quite get up, catch up yeah. to him. But yeah, but I think my point is, it wasn't like he's had this unbelievable three games where it's like, well, you just got to give it to him. So without being too, you know, we we're just talking about the Brownlow and who should be giving the votes. Is there is there something to be said with this award? Because I do think this is an award which should be ta- should be valued a lot higher than it is, and I think it does. It isn't valued that highly because of how kind of messed up the voting is and how you can be penalised for playing for being a better team. Oh, it's still pretty. How many? It's pretty new, isn't it? It yeah. is. It's only been around for five years five or so. Years, I think yeah. twenty sixteen might have been the first one. But is do do we say right? We just get to the end and we have people vote five, four, three, two, one on just the best player of the series, as opposed to doing it from individual games. Do you just have? Do you have a set amount of people that vote on the looking at the whole of September and you give your votes on that rather than just doing each game and then some players are playing more, some are less. 
Is that a way to, to do it? Is that going to fix it or not? No, I, I there's think merit you, in that, but you could also have some recency bias there where yeah, four weeks yeah, ago in a qualifying true. final, you might forget about a player's performance who probably yep. deserved a lot more recognition. I'd, I'd also question the grand final waiting too, you know, without wanting to sound like a heretic. And I, I know grand finals are the, are the be all and end all, but is the pressure you're in in a grand final that much more than a preliminary final or a semi-final? The, the other issue with I'd waiting it more that. with the grand final is if now that's worth more, then you don't want it to just be, oh, yeah, you get a Norm Smith medal, oh, and because of the waiting, you also now get this award as well. Mm. You kind of want... Yeah, you kind of want... They did this in Formula 1 years ago where the last race of the year was worth double points, and it's like that just devalues the rest of the races. So it's kind of like it need, you need everything needs to be the same. Mm. I don't th- I don't think I don't think a certain game whether it's a grand final or a prelim has should have more waiting than others. But then we still have the issue of some players are playing some players are playing others. more than that some, to me is the biggest issue. But oh, no yeah. one this year is going to play four games. No, no one's played. So so everyone will. Chris have, has played three, and every Geelong and Sydney player will, will have played have three. Played. I, mean, I think yeah. I think we're only down to six possible winners. So it's either going to be Jack Crisp. I think the only Geelong players that can catch him will be Dangerfield, Rowan, and Myers. <laughs> Rowan not Sydney, getting ten in the in and the grand for Sydney final. exactly. I don't know how high these guys have to get. These Parker and Mills are the only two possible Sydney ones. So we're sort of left with you know we know the final six. Just the other observation uh, based on the votes you read out, Jared. Uh, Dangerfield ten. He's the leading Geelong player, right? Yeah, so it's a tribute behind. to their evenness, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, uh, I think he. I believe he got ten in the prelim. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't. Put, he didn't have a single vote in the fir- in the, uh, in the uh, qualifying final. Yeah. But just their evenness across the board, you know. Yeah. Uh, how many did they get? The they did get the most in the All Australian, isn't it? I, I mean, I just I was thinking back to nineteen ninety one when Hawthorne won the flag <laughs> and didn't have a single. You're laughing because you weren't born in ninety. No, because I, I the over under on the nineteen ninety one reference was fifteen minutes, and we're at fourteen right now. Oh, do I do that a lot? Do I? <laughs> now, moving on now into the main agenda, that. we've got to uh, review these big prelims that we had over the week, and unfortunately, the Geelong and Brisbane game was a bit of an eyesore at times. It was pretty easy for the Geelong. They've clearly been the best team all season. A really strong defence matched by a really potent forward line. But Christian, I just want to ask you how were they so easily able to dismantle Brisbane it looked like from the outset defensively Geelong set up so well Brisbane could not penetrate them to save their lives and then in offense as well they were really able to punish the uh, the Lions yeah and I mean the big part of the game was turnover so we know scoring from turnovers probably about you know most teams are around about 60% around 55 to 60% of their scores come from turnovers so you know a big part of the game is scoring from turnovers Brisbane failed to score from a turnover across the entire first half. Their first score from a turnover from a Geelong turnover was the 29-minute mark of the third quarter. Uh, it's the second latest a team has ever scored from a turnover across a game. So you got to go right back to 2011. Frio in a very wet game scored yeah. from a turnover. I think. Um, uh, sorry, yeah, a, a little bit earlier. So Brisbane were actually later than them. So again, that was the main part of the game. Is Look, we talk about turnovers, and turnovers aren't, you know, we've said it on the pod before, it's not always a clanger, and it's not always a blatant turnover. The ball changes possession within a game of football 70, 80 times per team, you know, per game. So it's about 150 to 160 turnovers a game. So you know what's going to happen. So Yeah, but it was just the way Geelong were able to cash in on those. I think they scored about, you know, eight scoring shots from turnovers across the first half. But as I said, Brisbane not being able to score from a turnover for three quarters of the game is just unheard of and it was just you're not going to give your chance 
you know, yourself a chance to win a home and away game, let alone a final if you can't score from Can turnover. I just ask you on that? So where did Geelong rank for fewest points conceded from turnover? Yeah, so they were the hardest team to score of across the season from okay. a turnover. So and it was part of their strength, but yeah. Brisbane were also top three or four for cashing in on an opposition yeah, turnover. Okay. So Brisbane weren't as good as defending a turnover as Geelong. Yeah. So Geelong were always going to be able to score against them from turnover. Brisbane, yeah, wouldn't need it, as I said. We usually get 60% of their score from turnover across the game. What so. I want to ask, though, is how do they do it? How do they prevent Well, that's, and again, that's probably their setup, the way they had Stanley behind the ball, because I, and I called it pretty early, Collingwood Freo the week before. You could see probably late in the first quarter, Brisbane had no chance. They weren't taking their game on. They had no fluent ball movement. Um, you know, even in the second quarter, they started to sort of bomb it from even further out, and it just made it easier for Geelong. So again, it was probably the way Geelong set up behind the ball. They did beat them at the contest, to start with, but again, I it was more noticeable when Brisbane had the ball of just how little they could do with it and how you know uh, unwilling they were to take the game on. Just just on that, so without getting too technical about this, Robert Shaw on the Footyology podcast made a really good observation about you mentioned Stanley. So Geelong roll players. So Stanley goes from the ruck to the spare man in the back line. Blitzarves goes from ruck rover to the ruck roll, and I think Max Holmes or one of the small forwards goes into the ground-level stoppage role. So it's sort of like a, a chain reaction, isn't it? But again, we've talked about Geelong's improved flexibility. Mm. That's a great example of it, isn't it? And it yeah. makes it almost impossible to be tracking players and and if you're responsible for a certain player, then you're all of a, out, all of a sudden out of position. Yeah, I think Myers, Holmes and Duncan really help that sort of yeah. rotation around from half-forward, wing, half-back by, you know, Duncan yeah. able to get forward while Myers goes back and pushes behind the ball. So, yeah, definitely it was all about Geelong's setup. It just You could see it. They just got inside Brisbane's head quite I, early. I felt watching it, um, watching it, I felt that Brisbane were very late to a lot of contests in their forward 50. Their forwards, particularly um, Hipwood and McStay, just so late to get to it, to, couldn't even make it a contest, and that really hurt them. They allowed Geelong to take yeah, a lot of those intercept marks. That's one of the stats I looked at. I mean, the four key defenders for Geelong all ended up with multiple intercept marks. So to put that another way, and I think their forwards did do this, but if you go into a game and know that you've got four key forwards that are all going to kick you at least two goals you're going to be pretty happy with your forward line. If you can say that our defenders are at least all going to grab at least two intercept marks each, we're going to be happy with that. So Colo, yeah. DeConning, um, and Tom Stewart and a couple others like did grab that too. And again, yeah. just looking at that again, not one player had over 30 for Geelong. So we talked about evenness before. Uh, I think they had no player get over five clearances. Whereas you look at, you know, someone, I know Lockie Neal didn't have the high numbers that he usually gets, but when he when Brisbane play well and Lockie Neal plays well, he's usually got 15 more disposals than the next most teammate, yeah. maybe twice as many clearances. He carries a team. I looked at Geelong. He had 20 touches. Yeah, he was, if you he was, said Neil's going to have 20 touches and still have the most for the team, you think they're probably screwed. <laughs> that thing with the Geelong possessions, though, is very reminiscent of Hawthorne in 1991. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but they, it, it is, uh, they are that much better a team this year, aren't they, the Cats? And there's a lot of reasons, but that flexibility is one. The leg speed is another one. But we still... they've. <laughs> They've sort of increased the bag of tricks without giving away their strengths. And I think one of their best assets is their strength, their physical strength. And Brisbane doesn't have that. So when it rained, you know, the heavens opened on Friday afternoon, straight away I was thinking, oh, this is just Geelong and morals. I thought they were anyway, to be honest, but I just thought they are going to win this well because it... Uh, it up the ante on physical strength in the mm. game. And we talk you? about finals being, you know, high pressure and high contest, but yeah, you still got to be able to sort of 
withstand that contest and win the ball on the outside. And again, I think Rich, uh, Brisbane finished with 30-odd uncontested possessions in the second quarter, which was their equal third lowest in any game this year. So they couldn't even sort of... Just when you sort of got to get yourself back on your terms and chip it around, you know, to have the ball like 34 times in space across the quarter is very, very low mm. sort of number. So they couldn't... You're right, they couldn't match them at the contest, but they also couldn't sort of give themselves that little relief of if we do turn oh, the yeah, ball so over, let's just, yeah, chip it around for a bit. Does that say more about Geelong's dominance and the... You know their ability to set up the ground, um, you know, really squeeze it and give Brisbane no space. Is it about Geelong's defensive setup, or is it more Brisbane were in unable to actually adapt to the way the game was being played? I think it was yeah. It was as I said, it was Geelong's setup in terms of you could see Brisbane when they got the ball or took a mark, they had no idea sort of what to do next, mm-hmm. and it was very hard for them to sort of think it out, and they sort of got more and more nervous as the first half rolled on. You, you just sort of thought, well, they're getting more behind here. They have to take the game on more, but they're taking it on less and less with every mark. And it was the same as Frio with Collingwood the week before. It, it started so early that it was clearly about what they could see ahead of the ball. What Frio could see ahead of the ball when they played Collingwood, they were just too scared to kick to it. And it was almost similar to Brisbane. It was quite early you could see that. One of the other things with um, Geelong's defensive setup as good as they are and they do deserve a lot of credit I think the Geelong midfield also deserves credit because they do put the opposition mids under heat when they're put to making those kicks and they're the ones that were being intercepted and they're the ones that weren't allowing the Brisbane forwards to get to and yes I can stand here and say Dan McStay you know didn't play well neither did you know Hipwood or, or Danaher for that matter but I think it's very easy to say oh they're always late to the ball the pressure that Geelong's putting on through their midfield, and to your point, Ron, one of the critis- one of the criticisms with Geelong over the last few years has been they are old and they're slow, but they don't look slow anymore. And I think someone like Holmes, who 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 um, you're very high on, would have been, and we still don't know what he what his status is. I th- it's leaning towards he may play, um, but. He's been so valuable the back oh, half yeah. of this year. Oh, no, he really has. And uh, But also close. Uh, I'd argue Parfit, and he, ironically, hasn't been able to get a game. No. But he's been important too. I mean... Tom Atkins as well. In the Atkins as well. Like Geelong, they've been aware of this. It's yeah. not like Geelong suddenly gone, oh, yeah, we're slow. You know, yeah. they're, they've been they aware know, of yeah. this. But now they've got players who are not only quick, they can actually make a, a big contribution otherwise. And when you talk, you're talking about their midfield putting opposition midfields under pressure and you automatically think strong bodies blah 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 but it's not just that is it it's pace it's mm. so a uh, Max Holmes now Maxie's tackle numbers are really good so he puts pressure on yeah. the opposition midfield he's not physically strong but he hurries them in their disposal so yeah. that's about pace as well yeah no, absolutely. It's the speed and that pressure, that what they call the perceived pressure, yeah. which is just as valuable as the physical pressure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so, yeah, they, they they looked really good. And, you know, they had a shot in, in, like in the... Halfway through the fourth quarter, they had a shot in the stands of half a dozen Geelong players. Parfit was one of them. There's a few of them there. Menegola. And you think, gee, there's some good players that aren't, be, aren't going to be playing. They aren't even going to get a sniff on grand final day. Absolutely. I mean, Dalhouse, uh, another one, he's like a forgotten man, isn't mm. he? They look really prompt and ready. Hardly an injury other than the Holmes little hamstring tweak, which he might be okay from there. I, I'm, I, look, I don't want to go out on a limb here, and I don't know anything that anyone else knows, but I'm just getting a sense he... he I reckon he might play. Mm. Yeah, I, I think when he came off and he was smashing the ground in frustration, it looked like, it looked like this is going to be a three, four-week injury. Mm. But then when he came back 
up onto the ground after the game, he kind of had a smile on his face and he looked he looked happier. And I thought, is that just because his team's won and he's putting on that face? Mm. Or does he know, hang on a minute, maybe it's not as bad as first thought. And it seems to be the latter. I, I spoke to him after the game and I, I, like I went down there to console him. And just, again, sorry, uh, disclosure here, I know Max, I've known him since he was a little kid. I went down to sort of commiserate and he, he looked bright he said no mm. I, reckon, I reckon I'm okay I reckon I'm okay and and you know he kept sort of talking in that vein it was a pretty convincing act if he was putting on an act mm. and why would they why would they get him to do that anyway it's not like I mean with all due respect to Max it's not like he's Dangerfield or Selwood you know what I mean so if it's a ruse why would you bother yeah I agree the there's, the a one mental, pl- there's a mental part of that as well yeah. if, if you tell yourself you're okay you're going to get up You, it's not that bad an injury then you know mentally you might just be able to run out the yep. game but it might sound silly but if you put yourself in that mindset who knows well they've got form here too remember Stevie Johnson in 2011 he was about to have his leg amputated he couldn't walk in the morning yeah. on the well, yeah. just last year with Stephen May it was. I know they had the extra yeah. week but same sort of thing you know there's one player we've been talking about Geelong for 10 minutes now there's one player we haven't spoken about who's been their best player all year Jeremy Cameron mm. Like he, he was a non-factor in that prelim and he didn't need to be Yeah, and he's he's arguably the best forward in the league Enormous discipline, Brownlow Medal Knight, just eating the watermelon on the cocktail sticks. <laughs> so it says a lot. So when you it. when you add him back into the mix, because it's it felt like well he didn't really have much to do. He did. They didn't need him. He didn't have much. Of, didn't have much of a contribution in the prelim. Mm. Add him back in for a grand final. It's such a great forward setup, isn't it? You got oh. two two dominant key forwards. Both can win a game off their own boot. Yep. You've got uh, a, a medium sizer in Gary Rowan. Uh, Apologies, Jake. I know you're not a fan, but but <laughs> uh, right. you know someone like a Dangerfield can play that role yeah. as well. No, and then Dangerfield's we... playing in the midfield. Play him in the midfield on on grand final. Okay, but you, oh, my my point was you've got the medium size, yeah. but then the smalls who have been so pivotal to it, close and Stengel and hmm. um, Myers well, this week. Yeah. And Myers is the other one. And Myers, how good's he been? Yeah. in September. Just quickly back on Brisbane. Are we prepared to say their seasons of fail because of this loss? Or are we still seeing it as a as a pass? No, it's a tick for me. I they, think yeah, a lot of the call was if they don't win a final this yeah. year, they're in a big they're they're in a lot of trouble. I mean, they got through and won it's more two finals. Of the way they so lost this prelim, though. yeah, I know. And again, recency bias and but all I that sort of stuff. But I think yeah, going to win. Yeah, I think um, as we said at the start of finals, we we didn't want to see Brisbane sort of not put up a fight in any final they've won two pretty good you know like ripper against Richmond and sort of the last as I said, including you know, a final at the MCG have they only won one and it was at the Gabba mm-hmm. even though they weren't favourite in that game I would have said eh, it's you know not the greatest season but winning mm-hmm. two finals and winning one of them at the MCG so now they can go into next year and not having have to worry about that as a concern on the is road, a massive massive on, win on the road against the defending premier coming from 28 points down yeah. that, that's mm-hmm. a massive finals win yeah yeah um and with, you know, there's potential that they might be adding in, well, they're going to be getting Will Ashcroft and it looks like they're a big chance to land Josh Dunkley. Um, and all of a sudden... They do need a big off-season, I think. They the do, but they, they need they need anything. help in the midfield and they need to probably rejig that forward line. But they might be able to do it. Like, they're in a position where they may be, act- may be able to do this in one off-season. Christian, what's something that you can pinpoint about Brisbane that they need to improve... The 2023. Yeah, and it's it's clearly the defence. So again, top four in most of the offensive stats. Um, I think they finished second in points four in the end. I think Richmond just pipped them. Uh, one of the best teams once they go inside 50. But yeah, outside the top 10 for points against, uh, stopping teams from scoring once inside 50. So we um, done it a lot with the deep dive articles this year with yourself, Jared, in terms of premiership standards. When you look at 
premiership teams in the past, they usually rank higher in defensive stats than they do offensive stats. So defense comes first when trying to win premierships. It's the big black hole at Brisbane at the moment. Is so after I just said they've got to fix their midfield and four line now. But again, but as well. a little bit is and a little bit is in probably in that midfield. So again, I'll look at someone like Jared Lyons, and you know he's been in the competition for probably ten years and been hard as a observant statistician to to follow this guy's career. He couldn't get a game at Adelaide when he was you know every time he came on he did a job. He was always their sub every week. Went to Gold Coast. He was probably one of their top three players and ended up getting delisted. Mm. At Brisbane this year, he played all 22 home and away games. Um, was number one for them in inside 50s and tackles. So, you know, I, I, I've heard a little bit that it's, you know, it's probably his defensive running that they've sort of challenged him on. Well, he was number one of all their players for tackles. Um, and he was second at the club in basically everything else behind Lockie Neal. So disposals, clearances, mm. set amounts, clearances, contested possessions, all that sort of so stuff. So why does he not play in, in exactly, September? Exactly, and he couldn't get a game in September. And I just feel like... That, that was a big change to your midfield. I know that he might have his limitations and you might have been challenging him and he hadn't done what you'd asked him to, you know, from a coach's point of view. But he was your second best midfielder all year. You took him out of the team and didn't replace him with a like-for-like replacement. They played Matheson, but, they, but he was but, the but sub. If, yeah, but so that's exactly that. So if, if, you, if you want... If you think Matheson is more suited to September... You, we don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Clark but, Cody. But, but why is he starting on the bench? If if he's the player that you're going to bring in and he's going to play the, that role in the midfield in, in place of lines, why is he why is he starting on the bench? Well, that well, makes no... Uh, sorry, as the sub. No, that, no. That makes no sense. That's a really good point. I mean, all, all I can assume from what you're saying, Christian, is um, maybe Lyons' issue really is the defensive running. You know, maybe his running is more offensive and that would go to the defence, but the problems with the defence, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I reckon it's personnel primarily, but you're getting the view that they must think their midfield doesn't work hard enough defensively, and that puts the back six under too much hurt. could be part of the reason why they're hunting Dunkley. Well. I was going to say, and Dunkley's yeah, a good, a Dunkley's a good get for that. He's always yeah. been at least an above-average pressure player, if not elite. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in when he first started, I think he was quite high, you know, for a mid-forward in terms of applying pressure. Uh, I mean, Will Ashcroft is still young, but he's a complete midfielder. He's got mm. some good, you know, tackle and pressure numbers from his junior days as well. So, adding those two in there, but it is—it's not the defence in terms of the back six as such. I think it's more about the defence of yeah. When we lose the ball in our forward half or even in the midfield, we're not getting enough pressure on the ball carrier. It's too easy yeah, it's putting to you know. They, are there? Yeah, okay. I, I I look at their height though, and I think uh, you know, are there key defenders? Good enough against the real. Yeah, they're, they're probably missing that real standout take a mark intercept defender. Payne, Adams, Andrews, really, really good. Probably, you know, three of the best spoilers in the competition, Darcy really. Gardner. Darcy Gardner's a good one on one. He's more of a ground level player. He goes yeah. on the smaller guys. He's a good tackler. He they doesn't he doesn't beast, grab marks. Yeah. So you see May and Lever sort of play together. May will go spoilers and Lever will come across for the marks. Carlton had it with Weedering and Lewis Young. Brisbane don't have that secondary mm. key defender that can sort of give Adams or Harris Andrews that chop out. Yep, they're going to be an interesting watch in the offseason. The Lions. Hey, a new segment that we've got for this final series is the Dan Murphy's Go-To Player of the Week. Brought to you by Dan Murphy's, your go-to destination for unbeatable prices on all your favourite footy drinks. For this, we're looking at who had the most inside 50 targets on the weekend. The go-to player, Christian, who was it this week? It was uh, the big Tomahawk. Tom Hawkins for Geelong was targeted 16 times uh, across the prelims. No other player was more than six for the round. So, so last, clearly... last week, sorry, we had Ash Johnson on seven. seven. He was the most. Tom Hawkins, 16. 16. Is, yeah. that, is that abnormally high? Yeah, I think there's about... I looked at... 
again, I think it was between 20 and 30 games where a guy has been targeted at least 16 times this year. Um, this year. So that's just for one year. So, you know, probably happens once around or just over. Kind of highlights their dominance, though, doesn't it? Yeah, Being but able to get him, looking, right looking at it it, and looking at it, I mean, nine of those 16 times that they went to him, 63% of the time, they actually retained possession of the ball. So that's the most across this year. So mm. a target that's been kicked to um, at least more than 10 times has retained the ball at least 60% of the time. Sort of. So he was the most, you know, he was the highest used target for the week, but he was one of the most valuable forward 50 targets game we've seen this year. Right. In the return terms of, was yeah. what, 4-3? Three? 4-3, three, but, you know, been six, shouldn't team it? retention also allows, you know, you're one-on-one with your defender, you get spoiled and Tyson Stengel runs and picks up the ball. So it's that predictability of, we're going to kick it to Hawkins, but he doesn't need to win it for the mm. team to win the ball. So, uh, yeah, I think he took a mark, I think a three or four, of the 16 times but as I said there was another five times where Geelong came on and still won the ball but that shows how good he is because you, Chris Fagan and everyone all the Brisbane players know the ball's going to him if it's been 16 times but they still can't stop it and, and they still can't stop him and the, and the Cats retaining the ball and, and that's they would just kill them through that through how good he, like he's He's like Benjamin Button. He's just getting younger every year. He's just—he's a super. Well, he was it? Was it one of those like ones? Yeah, where know, looks, but it was a, a bit of a gold. <laughs> did it help him that he wasn't blessed with pace as a junior? So he's just stayed the same speed all the way through. So you don't have a—you don't have a sort of comparison point to go. Geez, he looks a bit slower than X yeah. year because he just looks like Tom Hawkins. But remember when he had his he started. Back issues? That was about 2013. He's like 10 seasons. Mm. Mm. You, you—you uh, Rowan. Um, He's your man. You put the spotlight on you. He, you said he's the player that can uh, can win yeah. the game on on Saturday for the Cats. Yeah. Oh well, because of everything I said, but uh, I, I guess also because of who they're playing. Like I, I rate Sydney's defence, but I, I, I could be wrong here. But it feels to me like it's more of a team defence, and he's so strong, and I think they are so cherry ripe. I think they can win the ball in enough space to pinpoint disposal to him. And you just can't double-team him with no, Cameron. No, well, I was going to say, I really the McCartan brothers have been fantastic, but I would back Hawkins in a one-on-one against either of them He's too any, strong. any day of the week. He did he miss a couple of strong. really easy shots during that game. As, yeah, yeah, as he, well. should have, oh, he should have kicked six yeah. easily. So four goals, three he finished with. Mm. Uh, 14 touches and five marks, all inside 50. So that was the Dan Murphy's go-to player of the week. Please remember to drink wise. Kick off the footy finals and score a great deal at Dan Murphy's. Shop unbeatable prices in store or online at danmurphys.com.au. Conditions apply. Choose to drink wise. Dan Murphy's. Moving on to the Sydney and Collingwood prelim. That was a hell of a game, guys. Oh. Pies nearly put off one of the most miraculous heists we've probably ever, ever seen. Um, Sydney, they, they shot out of the gates, obviously kicking the first four goals. I think they established about a six-goal lead in the third quarter. Papley put them 20 points in front with eight or nine minutes to go and, and the Pies came back and ne- nearly pulled it off again, but they held on for dear life. Hum, humble brag here with, I think it was still 20-something points. I know, oh, in fact, it was still the third quarter. I think I tweeted, I said, as dominant as Sydney's been, it, it, this game doesn't have that shut... It doesn't feel like they've just shut the gate, does it? And the swan, you, no. Um, it just gave them a sniff, you know? See, I kind of felt the other way. I, I thought... Probably in the in the late in the second quarter when they started to really get on top, I thought this is over. This could really blow out to ten goals. But yeah, and they just so much. How much of the comeback was in Sydney's head, knowing who they're playing and knowing they've done this all throughout the season? 
If they're playing any other team that hasn't been able to do that week after week after week, do they put the foot down and win by nine goals? Well, vice versa. Uh, Collingwood's self-belief, yeah. knowing they're never out of the contest. Exactly, and, yeah, and you yeah. know that McRae's telling them that at three-quarter time. You know the players believe it because it's happened. Yeah. You don't believe... If you are if you haven't come back from, from five goals down at any point in the year yeah. and you're getting told we can still win this at three-quarter time, you know as a player we're not winning. Yeah. But you, you're like, we've done this like half a dozen times. But yeah. even then, you know, in a, in a really low-scoring game, it was still... I think it was tw- still... The margin was still 21 points with about five and a half minutes to play. That's when Majacek... Kick the first of those last three Yeah, goals. and on my check, um, people keep telling me that Tom Papley's mark or free kick shouldn't have shouldn't have been. It was a mark. They, it was a non-free kick that they played. They won't. They keep. I keep keep getting told that that one shouldn't have counted. What about my check's mark? Was that a mark? That last one. Yeah, he didn't mark yeah, that ball. Really well, it, yeah. I thought. To be honest, I, I didn't see. I thought Papley marked his one. He so he marked it, but he shoved. Was it Darcy oh, Moore? Oh, he shoved Moore in the back. Yeah. Didn't he? So yeah. that that one. That's what I was saying. Was that paid a mark to Papley, or was it a too high on? That's what I was saying. I'm not I sure if they, it was a mark or a free. Uh, but I, th- I think you might they paid the mark. Yeah. Mark, yeah. So that could have been a fifty-fifty. But then it's like yeah, my, my check, checks yeah, one. It was like that's not a mark. He got his hands to it in a pack, and they just paid it to him. Yeah. So. I think that those two sort of evened out. Yeah, but I think the Swans were just the better team over four full quarters. It's as simple as that. They took away a lot of Collingwood's strengths, like their rebound from defence. Their, mm. their pressure was was insane. They really took Collingwood's game away from them. What was it that you noticed, Christian, about Sydney's win? So we know with Collingwood's ball movement, it's been a, a lot like Richmond the last three years, that it's really high metres gained through handball. So once they sort of get their running game going, keep the ball moving forward with handballs... Um, even it started pretty early. I think the first half, um, they finished with 39 handballs for the half, Collingwood, which is 10 fewer than any other game this year. So they're still getting, you know, four metres gain from each of those handball. You know, anything over one's pretty high. But they just weren't allowing them to do it. Sydney Sydney weren't allowing them to get chains of handballs going. I think Collingwood finished with a kick-to-handball ratio of 2.46, so, you know, almost two and a half kicks for every handball. They're usually down at 1.4, so they don't like playing that game style. Uh, so again, it was the way Sydney pressured them and set them up around the ball. It just didn't let them get that yeah that high run and carry with handball. Um, shut that down pretty early. And I almost yeah wrote Collingwood off just based on the halftime points again. I mean, they conceded 73 points in that first half. Mm. I just thought that was too too much. I thought, you know, a lot of the other comebacks, they'd conceded maybe 40, 50, 60 points in the first half and had still managed to come back. But they did. Collingwood sort of... You looked at even you know looking at territory, so even numbers like inside fifties at halftime were even. So it was eighteen scoring shots to eight Sydney's way, but both teams had had thirty inside fifties. So when you were looking at how the game was being played and where the ball was moving to, I thought they were both on even terms. It was just that Sydney was really putting it their uh, efficiency, was yeah, noticeable. putting it onto the scoreboard. So it sort of flipped a little bit in the second half, um, but yeah, probably as we said, probably a little bit too late. It was mainly the last ten minutes of the final quarter. I think Collingwood really dominated. They probably just needed to go. A little bit earlier than that, even. What What about the the balance of how Sydney plays its footy? Because I reckon they've had that really right this year. You know, they've got the kids that do the outside run, and then the, you know, the contestable beasts like Luke Parker, etc. I just felt that, you know, I hesitate to criticise John Longmire being one of the best two coaches in the game, <laughs> but I did feel over the last quarter like they went too defensive. You know, mm. like keep keep attacking, keep trying to score. You know, I thought they. They, they backed themselves into a corner and that then helped Collingwood's mindset but Collingwood's going 
gee, these guys are just trying to hang on here. Come on, let's keep going. You know what I mean? It it probably is easier said than done because if you keep the foot on the pedal and you do try and keep scoring and scoring, it does open you up more defensively and knowing that Collingwood are going to just throw caution to the wind. Yeah. But it also at three-quarter time, yeah. if you're a Sydney player, you're probably already thinking we're playing in the grand final. Yeah. And then you're th- also thinking, I don't want to get injured in this last quarter. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that just shows you can be... If you take your foot off the gas one or two percent, that just changes everything. Mm. It's not like all of a sudden, okay, we're going to operate at 50%. It was just enough to give Collingwood a sniff. And the last five minutes of that, that game was just... It was just one-way traffic. Yeah. Mm. And they do have one thing to worry about this week. That's Sam Reid's injury and how they're going to mm. replace him. He was really superb. Is he definitely out? We, I don't think, know, I, we don't know yet, but it might be the Max Holmes. I think Holmes feels more likely to play than Reid at this point. But yeah, right. they may both both still play. Reid... Reid would be a big loss for a couple of reasons. Um, as great as Buddy is... I feel like Geelong, and, and we will have a separate uh, grand final podcast later in the week, so we won't go into a great um, amount of detail, but I feel like Geelong's defense can contain Buddy. With Reed there, then they start to get stretched. It is a little bit more like the Cameron he, and he's Hawkins the one up with the, the other end. Ass, well, there's aerial, a lot of pressure now on Logan McDonald to perform aerially, in the grand final. He's way better than Buddy Franklin is over his well, head. If you look at yeah, Sydney's so, yeah. anchor forwards in terms of who do they kick to at the top of the square, you know, one out or three on one side, it's Heaney or Reed would be the two that yeah. they'd spot up more than Franklin. Yeah, so Franklin will do what he does where they'll spot him up outside or sort of that 50 to 60 range and he'll do his thing at ground level as well. But with no uh, with no read, mm. you can't go to. I don't think. Well, we may see Isaac Heaney as the Dan Murphy's targeted player next week. Well, but I don't think they can go to him twelve times. I think yeah. McDonald's going to have to play uh, play above what we've seen him do in the in certainly the couple of finals. Well, you're a rep for him. You think he's eminently capable of doing that? Don't well, you, he's so? going to need to play. He's going to need to play his best game that he's played. I think to, um, f- for Sydney to win. That's interesting with Heaney because I. Remembering that round two game, Heaney kicked five, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, he did, and yeah. Franklin kicked four. So you can bet your life Geelong's already, with or without Reid, putting yeah. a lot of work into Heaney. Yeah, uh, but I do think, and I know it's very easy to say, but I think Geelong is a far different team to what they were in round two in that oh, yeah. in that game. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, that, and I mean we'll, that, was, that was their worst performance of the year. Well, again, margin-wise it was, but if you, again, it's only a small part of the score. Expected scores, they they won that game. Oh, so again, right? Sydney, you know, excuse my French, kicked out of their ass that game and Geelong, you know, just kept missing. So, it was a, it was a weird night, you know, it was the Buddy Franklin. It was, it was a really party sort of feel for Sydney. Sydney felt like they controlled the game. They were never in trouble. But then again, stepping back and look at the numbers, there was nothing Geelong would have looked at in that game and said, "We have to get better at X." It was just like, "Oh well, if they're going to kick like if they're going to kick seventeen three, yeah, we just can't just beat them." So that weird yeah. night, you just reminded me of those scenes, you know, with uh, Warner and Florent walking. Down. Yeah, I saw the they, uh, Warner and Florent better not end up walking along Brunton Avenue about the, halfway mm. through the third quarter on Saturday. I, I like I like Ollie Florent, but. That is going to be, in twenty years' time when Chad Warner is a two-time Brownlow medalist. That will be a trivia question: Who was standing with Chad Warner outside the SCG on Buddy the night Buddy kicked a thousand? You are a harsh judge, Jake. <laughs> I was talking about pretty reasonable player. He's Geelong, a great player. Geelong was supposed to win on expected scores in round two. I think Collingwood had more inside fifties on the weekend. That's probably 
testament to the why that Sydney are able to actually defend the SAG. Yeah, well. so yeah, so um, sixty-two inside fifties for Collingwood was their equal second most in any game this year. So again, yeah, Sydney were you know giving him a chance in terms of territory, but again, it, especially that, in the first they? half, as I said, they had thirty inside fifties Collingwood, thirty inside fifties Sydney. You can go back and just watch the tape. The the quality of those entries and the the ability to sort of get those get those entries to guys that are in space that can turn around and get a shot on goal, whereas Collingwood was probably just getting it in there and it was just like pack of players and swarm of players, especially in that first half. There was no space along with those entries. But historically, don't Sydney concede plenty of inside 50s? I don't know if that's still the case. Yeah, they were, they're, they're, I mean, they're top five for it this year. They're, they're a lower one because they just dominate so yeah, much okay. of the ball. But yeah, again, Sydney's not... Uh, Sydney... Their defence isn't their weakness, but again, when you look at it, the best defensive teams, it's Melbourne and Geelong probably come up slightly better in Frio this year, and Sydney yeah. were always fourth or fifth in all the stats. So. The Just, thing that I would be... Um, I would remain positive, because I think a lot of people are already expecting Geelong's going to win this grand final, but I think it's going to be pretty close. Sydney, Sydney's got plenty of match winners. Sydney's got plenty of players that can win a game. Now, I'm not saying they're all going to bob up and win a game off their own boot but there's this is the sort of the criticism we had of a couple of teams Brisbane and Frio where it's like who's the player that's going to be the spark Sydney's got half a dozen of these players well, name that that will well, name, uh, another name. way to put it I'd... Franklin yeah. Heaney Papley yeah. mm. Parker yeah. Mills yeah. haven't said your favourite and Warner um, but chair. I was going to say and you can yeah. do it with both of these teams <laughs> I think Geelong Geelong might have the three or four genuine stars, but if I ask you the question of what player does Sydney, you know, the, the number one player that Sydney pick every week, who do they not want to lose? I think that's the hardest team to answer that question for. Like, who do you look at Sydney Who's and go... Who's their most important player? Yeah. You Who's take, out, you player, take out Luke Parker. You say, is it, Christian? It's, Mills? Exactly. It's ex- extremely hard to answer because I feel like it's they're Parker. all very good players, it's but if Parker Mills goes Mills, out... I, th- I think it's Mills. I, I As much as I like Luke Parker, I think Mills... But do you look at it as a position say, if we shut down Mills, we shut down Sydney? It's not no, like that because no, they're not, so even. Like that's what I'm I saying. Yeah, I think can, Mills can do a lot, a lot of different things. You mm. saw Mills was the deepest player late in that game against Collingwood. They just put him. We forget that that's where he started as a defender, and then they just put him put him back behind the ball. I think Parker is a spiritual leader for them, though. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, but I think um, the mor- impact on morale of losing Parker might be greater than losing Mills. Yeah. But then also, it's like if you found out that on Thursday. Um, if you found out Thursday that Buddy's done a hamstring, would you say, "Oh my God, that's the last player they could afford to lose"? No. Or if you found, if they said Mills did his hamstring on Thursday, it, you're right. Like there's so many, and then you look, mm. then it's like, but what then, about something like Isaac Heaney, which is a player that can spark them as much as anybody? So mm. you're right. Yeah, I. I but but I, I also think the flip side of that is you can then say, well, they do have a lot of they they do like Geelong have a lot of even contributors. Yeah. And they have those five or six players that can win them a match. And that was probably what my criticism of Frio was earlier in the year where it was kind of like love Andy Brayshaw, love David Mundy, they don't have anyone else. Fife's the only player that can really spark it. So the thing that I look at the thing that I look at with Sydney in terms of they don't even need someone to step up for that four quarters. Like you talk about Frio, you know, and who who sort of supports Brayshaw. Errol Goulden, if he just gets three score assists in one quarter, he's done his job. Mm. Isaac Heaney can pop up and kick three goals in a quarter. He's done his job. Yeah. Luke Parker wins five. They, they don't, again, because you've got, you're going to get four-quarter performance from the whole team, you just need guys to yeah. step up at 
different periods of time you know, for Sydney. Another, Nick Blakey is another one that can just have... He's an, he's the type of player that can really provide that drive. So he's another one. He might not kick three goals in a game, but he can be a match-winning player. Yeah, yeah well, no, I agree with that. And the, uh, Interesting you mentioned Goulden, because the thing that really I noticed with him in the preliminary, which I hadn't sort of noticed before, was his defensive game. Like, I think he was almost he, seven tackles, I think. Yeah, well, so right he started up. as a small forward, and I think because he is so good at working back, he's he plays on the wing. And again, wing's one of those underrated positions that you have to be a good defensive yeah. runner to be a valuable wingman, and he has been. Uh, just on the pie, so they went from 17th to 4th this year. Um, well documented, one of the worst, if not the worst, clearance and stoppage teams this season. Christian always put their back on under a lot of pressure, which is probably why they were able to score so heavily, or focused on scoring from the back half this year. What do we take away from their season and how do they improve in 2023? Yeah, it's been a long-term philosophical question that we've asked at the office and probably everyone has. When you're a new coach and you're trying to... Do you start with offense or do you start with defense? What what do you want to nail first to sort of be a successful team? And again, looking at this year, Craig McRae has nailed the offense. Um, you know, as I said, they're, they're, they're playing a very Richmond high sort of run game style, high handball uh, meters gain game style that as we said similar to Richmond they don't need to win the disposal count or the contested possession count to sort of get you because they have that sort of brutal ball movement but it is it's clearances contested possession so protecting yourself first but trying to just win a bit more of that ball first as I said they had games where they were negative 40 negative 50 for contested possessions uh, their back six held out really well but yeah just conceded a lot of inside 50s across the game so again I think it's step one this year was let's this is the way we want to play when we have ball in hand Step two next year will be like, now we know what we're doing with the ball in hand. Let's get, you know, defensive structures, you know, in place. So I think that'll be the second step of Craig McRae's sort of coaching reign. I'm wrapped I'm rap- I'm to hear that because, I mean, I know defence is important, but it's attack that makes the game attractive, isn't it? And they, they really, you know, McRae freed them up and they played with a lot of flair and they, you know, they attacked and they, you know. It was, yeah, well, it was great again, it's probably probably funny for where the clubs are now, but the most recent time I remember discussing it was when I think Reese Shaw and uh, David Teague might have started at the same, or, sorry, uh, was it Reese Shaw and Bolton or Teague, but it was one of the, they both got new coaches at the same time and one, Carlton went really, really defensive and it was clearly that, that Bolton just didn't want to concede scores and we had sort of no offence. Whereas North couldn't stop scoring, they were just playing offensively. And it was like, well, both teams are struggling and not winning, but they're clearly, one's building offensive first and one's building defense first. So it, neither of those coaches have sort of lasted long enough to sort of see it all come to fruition. But it was, it was, you could clearly see that, yeah, some coaches come in and just want to sort of protect themselves for a year or so. And it, it, as a supporter, it can be hard to watch because you sort of, you know, you're, you're not losing games by much, but you're just not scoring anything. Or you can sort of do what Collingwood and North did in those years and just sort, sort of thought, well, yeah, let's use our skills with the ball and let's use, you know, Dacosses and Degoeys and they're quite fast ball movers. But it is, it's like this year defence, I don't think was, you know, I'm sure he was teaching it each year, but I don't think defence was their biggest uh, priority and hopefully they put that a bit higher next well, year. Well, the Cats are three for defence and three for attack, aren't they? So, you know, they've got... The, 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 equal measures they invest as much yeah and you know even Melbourne who we spoke about how powerful they've been they never quite got their offence quite no. going as good as the good teams and you know who's sort of uh, you know they're, they're no longer in it this year so and I think it was because of their offence so yeah it is you've got to get that balance right but when you're a new coach I don't think you can come in and try to work on both of them and nail both of them I think yeah. you clearly got to nail one side of the game first and then move to the other side of the game the Brownlow's been running one. Jake Patrick Cripps, the winner. We touched on it a bit a bit earlier, but you're the Brownlow man here. Did it unravel the way that you thought it would? 
Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people have sort of said to me today uh, and yesterday, oh, you were wrong. You said Oliver or Neil would win. And yeah, I was. Um, but I wasn't ultra surprised that Cripps won. I mean, he only had him three votes behind and um, he polled two more than I expected and the other guys polled a couple less than I expected. So it's a it's a... It's difficult to work it out, especially when there were so many players that um, we knew were going to finish quite tight at the top. Congratulations to Patrick Cripps. He's had a fantastic year, regardless of the uh, the bump on Kalamachi against the Lions. I mean, once he's free to play, I think we need to move on. Um, and he deserves it. He's been a fantastic player for Carlton since he arrived at the club. He had a down year last year, but he's been sensational this year um, just about every time he's gone out of the park. Um, our listeners to our Brownlow special episode, hopefully they um, they listened to a couple of things that Christian and I were saying because there are a few little few little nice things that came up on Brownlow night. Um, Noah Anderson to finish top twenty was one of them, and Took Miller for the most games polled in um, were nice little little wins. But there were some bizarre decisions. Like we won't go into a great amount of detail, but like some of the ones, like Patrick Cripps only getting one vote in round one was insane. Um, Carl Amon polling three straight best on grounds. Just utter nonsense. I mean, there were three... Did, did he have a better year than Ollie Wines and Connor Rosie? I d- don't even need to answer that. It's clearly he didn't. Mm. Um, you know, there were three players in the competition that polled three best on grounds in a row. Patrick Cripps, Zach Merritt, and Carl Amon. That's it. Is that? Do you think that's the biggest surprise of the night? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was... A, it was no one... I always tell people to be wary when you're multi-team toppers for every team because there's always one that you you can't expect. But it's kind of like everyone was going rosy and I thought, well, what's going to be wines? I think we both said it was going to be wines. And then Amon's has come out of absolutely nowhere. So, so what what were Cripps's numbers for that round one game you only got one vote for? Uh, I think 30-something, a goal and a stack of clearances. A usual yeah. kind of Cripps dominant game where he looked to be the best player on the ground, if not uh, two votes, but he only got one. Is that the um, single sort of biggest atrocity vote-wise, do you think? Um you could go the other way. I think Lockie Neal, I was surprised Neal didn't get votes in the round 19 Q clash. Um, Cripps got two in round 14. I can't remember who Carlton played round 14, but he got two there where I don't think anyone had him polling votes. So there are, there are a few throughout the year. But like we said at the start, overall, like the umpires do a pretty good job. The umpires, mm-hmm. if I have a player getting three, nine times out of ten, they get that the three. Well, it's good if, if Cripps got votes for a game where he probably shouldn't have got them. Carlton yeah. supporters might finally forget Greg Williams not getting three votes for four. I, I know, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about here. <laughs> um, but look, I had Cripps finishing on 27. He got 29, so it was around the mark. And um, I had Lockie Neal getting 30, and he got 28. So it, all it is, it just is one of those. You, they both have a game where one polls a bit more, one polls polls uh, fewer or none in Neil's case and that just changes the result around but yeah I think the top six was pretty settled and uh, Jeremy Cameron Dion Prestia Zach Merritt guys like that kind of expected them to all finish around that sort of 8 to 13th band the one player that that I probably was the most wrong on was Sam Walsh had him probably polling around 20-21 votes and he only got 13 I think yeah, we, had, we had Sam Walsh finishing 5th on our count and didn't even get close and the other one probably the other one you forgot to mention probably Taylor Walker as well getting mm. up to 14 votes or whatever he did yeah I think I might have Walker getting about 10 but yeah f- that was 
same sort of thing. And Rory Laird, a lot of people surprised Rory Laird didn't poll a single best on ground and only 10, really? 10 votes. Sure. Um, and I had, I'd said it throughout the year, and I, I'm pretty sure I said it on the on our Brownlow pod, was he's the hardest player to work out how he's going to go this year. He could get eight votes or he could get 23 votes. It really depends how the umpires view him. And when he didn't have a vote after five rounds, it's like he's not he's not polling well. It seems like um, you, you can now get votes if you don't play on a successful side. There was a period there in the early 2000s where you had to be on the winning almost team. A, well, almost from a grand final to, to win the Brownlow. You know, we had this succession of years where the winners were all from grand final teams or at least top four teams. We've seen a bit of an exception to that, and now. I think and that's I think that's the way one. it should be. Oh yeah, no, you, shouldn't be for, um, you shouldn't be penalised for you shouldn't be penalised for playing um, in a side that only wins nine games. Like look yeah. at Miller. Miller's a perfect example. Mm. His numbers would suggest he had an identical year to last year. Polled seventeen votes last year. Polled twenty seven this year. You know, and then you look at someone like Sam Walsh, who polls thirty last year, and that's that would have won it this year. Mm. What and did he, he poll this year? Fourteen. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've got to ask, Jake, do you have a mad Tuesday after Brownlow night? Oh, I had a mad... Well, it's, well, it was a Sunday, so I had a mad Sunday night. Oh, that's night. Right, a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, it was a mad Monday for you. Yes, it was. Started, <laughs> probably, probably started about Monday. By the time I'd, I'd done all my um, post-Brownlow uh, analysis and, yeah, just a few bits and pieces and, um, yeah, got through everything. It was a very late night, but it was fun. I loved the Brownlow. As next year for another predictor. Oh, of course. Uh, justified hype or hyperbole. We've got to wrap this up now. The segment where I'll say a statement and you guys will tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Christian, the first one for you. Brisbane are a genuine flag threat in 2023 with the potential uh, inclusions of Will Ashcroft, Josh Dunkley this offseason. I keep them up there. I thought you were going to ask me the other way in terms of are they... Was this their last chance? And I was going to sort of throw it back and say, well, I think we've been saying that about Geelong for the last four or five <laughs> years. What did Geelong, you know, Geelong need to throw it out and start again? Brisbane are getting to the pointy end consistently. Um, I spoke about Conglaring, you know, can see their defensive numbers need to be fixed, so they need to address those issues. But no big changes, no sweeping changes need to be made at Brisbane. I think they just got to keep doing what they're doing. As I said, yet yeah, clearly improve their defence. You know, ad- adding Josh Dunkley and Will Ashcroft is going to help in that midfield. It's hard to stay up the top for that long. They've done it three or four years. As I said, they got two finals wins under their belt this year. I think they just uh, sort of regroup and go again. I don't think there's anything too much to have to change to be a, a flag this, threat next year. This might sound crazy because everyone will say, oh, obviously you take the grand, take the premiership. But do you, as, a cl- as a supporter of a club, would you rather your team just has one out-of-the-box year wins a flag and then you're just irrelevant for a decade? Or would, would you take six, seven, eight years of your team being a perennial top four side and challenging, but never actually landing you one. You can't answer that in hindsight. You right? don't, exactly. So but if, it, if I said to you as a, as a supporter right now, hey, you're going to... You're going to have your, one your good team's year. going to make the finals once in the next decade. They do win the flag, but you don't know that. Or your team will make the finals for the next 10 years in a row, but they'll you, never you, win a, a flag. Yeah. If you're answering that now for the future, you're going to say, "Well, I want my team to make finals for the next ten years, yeah. even though they don't win a flag." Are you? Well, you don't. Not know that knowing they're that they're going to win or not win either way. That's what he's if saying. If you had yeah. the choice of 
say the Bombers making finals once in the next 10 years or you get to choose but, they but make finals it? but you don't know they're going to win gonna, no, of course you're going to oh, say yeah, you'll yeah, take yeah, 10 yeah. years yeah. but so it's, yeah, I but think, if it's winning a flag I, I think you take the flag I, I really oh, you do. take the flag if you know you're winning a flag yeah but then you but, got nine years of pain and I'm not saying Brisbane who knows we said this this time last year you're right Christian we sat, we, we stood here and we said Geelong's done they think Geelong are Seven prelim losses or something, yeah. haven't they? So, oh, we've said that about Geelong, I reckon, yeah. five times. So, you know? so <laughs> Brisbane, Brisbane's still got enough younger talent there, and they're bringing in. If if they do, if they are successful in bringing in those players, well, Ashcroft is they're going to get Dunkley. Looks like they may get two, and there's talk of Jack Gunston and a couple of other players. No, they're definitely around the mark. This is a step forward year for Brisbane. Yeah. I think. To, no, I, I think it's very easy to say, oh, it's another failed year. They. They have exceeded expectations by winning two finals. They hadn't done that under Fagan, and they won one of those at the MCG, which they hadn't done in years. So yep. I think it's a step forward. Yeah, no, I agree. Ryko, North Melbourne didn't deserve their assistance package. Uh, hyperbole, uh, which is interesting because as a rule, I'm not a fan of it. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, you make your bed, you line it. You know, you, should, you shouldn't be compensated for poor list management, etc. But... I'm also a big believer in the draft assistance um, rule as it used to be, and this is going back 25 years. You know, it, it had to be over a three-year period. Um, in fact, going back 30 years, this is like 1993 or whatever. You had, to, you had to. It was called a perennial poor performance yeah, thing, and it should be. Um, it had to be over three years, and North Melbourne over the last three years have won uh, what two games this year, four and a half last year, and three. The year before that, that's three years of poor performance. That for me is enough. I also quite like the fact that they're future draft picks that have to be traded, so it doesn't really impact on picking up the best young talent. It doesn't compromise other sides in that regard. Yep. So uh, hyperbole. I, I think it's a good move. Jake, probably the the biggest question here and the biggest rot we've ever seen in AFL history. <laughs> Sam Draper did not deserve the Goal of the Year award. <laughs> did not deserve it. No, he did not. That is justified. Oh. That the Draper winning Goal of the Year is flatly embarrassing from the from <laughs> everyone I, involved in the. I, 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 I need I need Matt day. here on on the week of the podcast after he kicked out. I think me and Matt both said give him Goal you of did, the Year. Now and I was no like I was, I was I was wrapped with it. I'm, no, Big, but no. why are you wrapped with it? Because you, it's this is my point about you. You guys have so what feeding, should have been? What should have been? There, there were a hundred goals kicked this year that were that took more skill to. Doesn't matter. What, what was the most enjoyable goal of the year? Because Sam Draper's. His, they don't say it's it? not the most skillful goal of the year. It's the goal of the but year. There's so it? many things that you can okay, put but into. What, what made it so good? Because the, the, it was part of the comeback. It was straight out of the center. It was. It's the flowing mullet. Yeah, it so helps I'm who see, kicked I'm it. But that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the complete package. It. No. Yes, it's the if way Zach it was kicked, kicked. Who kicked it? Got, if Zach Merritt does that exact, exactly the same thing with the exact same celebration, does he get even nominated? No, but how for many goal Ruckman kick goals? But that's my point about Ruckman. They, well, they do Ruckman. something half decent, and we overrate them. Like, oh, we've got to give them an award. It's just wrong. But if you're going to say that, nominate what you would have had goal of the year. Well, I think Bolton's goal was better. I think Charlie Dixon kicked a goal for against Frio, I think, from the boundary, which was better. I, I think that was the same game. It was about round 14, 15, and Caleb Sarong in the same game kicked yep. kicked a goal. That was the game that had the two two genuine goal of the year contenders and two mark of the year contenders, Georgiades and Young. And Georgiades did win mark of the year. I, yeah, look, I, 
I do see where you're coming from, but I, I still would have given it to If him. that's any other player in the league, that's not But think of the upside that's not goal Now year. all these players might try and grow mullets just to attract attention. Well, it's the same as... It's the same as... Anytime it's something slightly different, it was like when not to bang on all the Essendon Essendon goal, but yes, Lloyd kicked are. a you goal. Matthew Lloyd kicked a goal, a little back heel from yeah, two meters out, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, well, look at the level of skill!" It's like, give me a break. Like that. No, that's what I said. Dude. I said I said goal of the year should never be kicked from the goal square. But then there's the Daniel Wells one, which is pretty yeah, special yeah. goal. But it's the yeah. same thing. It's like, but it's five meters out. Give me something that's a bit further out, a back what, heel and a yeah, but see, kick. There's a real difficult argument with goal of the year, isn't it? Because I reckon a lot of them, you know, there's a huge element of luck. Should it be something that is obviously lucky as opposed to something that is craft and deliberate? I think luck. Like, I don't know about luck. I mean, you're obviously still sh- shooting for goal. Like, if you're on the boundary and you beat... Like, some of those Eddie Betts goals where he beats someone on the boundary and he's still having a shot. So, it's not like he was trying to square it and it went through. I don't think anything that hits the ground should be goal of the year. Yeah, I mean, no, you I are don't relying really think on... that. I just sort of be... I'd, I'd do a can of corns that, and be deliberately provoking. No, but I, I think... I think the fact that Draper won goal of the year, I, I just think it's just so flawed. But it also gives me... It also justifies what I've always said about Ruckman. And that's what makes me pleased. So I'll leave it at that. You yeah. just you just hate Essendon, Jake. Listen to me, Essendon. Hey, Jake massive... Michaels hates Essendon. Yeah. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. I love Zach Merritt. I'm firmly on Jake's side here. Definitely shouldn't have been goal of the year. You're, you're, you're a Collingwood that. supporter, aren't you? Doesn't matter. We'll leave it on that note, guys. Obviously, there's a special preview podcast coming up this Thursday, which is the reason why we didn't do a great deal of Geelong and Sydney talk in this episode. So we'll be previewing... The big grand final coming up this weekend on Thursday with Jake and Matt will be back for that as well. And Christian Jolly obviously bringing the stats perspective to that. So we'll see you on Thursday for another special edition of the ESPN Footy Podcast. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.